the public, I think, needs to see more innovation. I think that the customer is almost desensitized. And I think we have an opportunity now with this new baseline set to really innovate beyond what has been the model for the past 15 or so years. Focusing on wholesale actually became a very natural extension for us. It wasn't just the path of least resistance in those early days, but it was also a path that naturally fit with the said pillar of focusing on origin. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. In today's episode, we're chatting with Dylan Edwards and AJ Waltzer, the team behind one of New York City's favorite specialty coffee brands, Parlor Coffee. Dylan founded Parlor Coffee in 2012, originally as a pop-up espresso bar in a Williamsburg barber shop. AJ joined the business in 2014, and since then, Parlor has grown to a formidable and globally revered roasting business, driven by a passion for origin, community, and innovation. In this conversation, Dylan and AJ discuss the evolution of the New York specialty coffee scene over the last 15 years and their decision to prioritize wholesale expansion over cafes. They also highlight the need for innovation and elevating the customer experience, as well as discussing the importance of patience, empathy, and shared values when building a business together. At the end of the episode, in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project, You'll also hear a great new track from New York-based artist Nicole Zuritis, who incidentally just won her first Grammy. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much, Jess. We're delighted to be here today. Now, Dylan, I wonder if you could share your, your story and the actual story behind Parlor Coffee. How did it come about? And also, what does the name mean? I came to New York in 2009 with a barista job and quickly realized that I was in the center of a budding coffee movement. Mm. At the time, there were only a handful of coffee bars serving specialty coffee. And the shop that I was working at, Stumptown at the Ace Hotel was one oh, of those. legend. Yeah. And it, uh, at the time, you know, being one of the few games in town, if you will, uh, we had lines out the door and celebrities coming in for espressos. And I, I think it, it was right around then that I realized I, I wanted to be a part of this movement in a bigger way than just working for another one of the brands mm -hmm. playing in the game. So I, I knew I wanted to set out on my own. So I I convinced a local barbershop in Williamsburg to let me start a seven day a week pop-up espresso bar in the very back. Originally, I wanted it to be in the front with a window and the, the proprietor wasn't having it. So I, I took what I could get and I built a coffee bar in the back. We were roasting coffee out of a shared space, bagging the coffee at my apartment on the Lower East Side <laughs> and serving espresso by day behind the counter in the back. Yeah. Just espresso, right, Dylan? Yeah, so everything was served on a one-group espresso machine, a little uh, a little machine made by a, a Dutch mastermind known as Keys van der Westen. Yeah. I, I had my eye on one of those and we, we ended up ordering a speedster, which is a little one group, uh, showpiece 
I knew if I was going to do something that small scale, I needed it to to have a little bit of showmanship and a little bit of theater. So we we decided to splurge on a, a really nice one group to uh, to help make the experience a little more enticing for those who are bold enough to walk through a barbershop to get a coffee. And and how long did did you trade from that point? Yeah, so that was sort of the infancy moment and conception of the of the of the brand. Uh, you know, pretty quickly, um, thanks to our lucky stars, our timing, our friends, um, the work we were doing, and the, the the humble operation was was gaining a little bit of traction in the press, and uh, it became evident with also our first account around the corner in Brooklyn buying, you know, 30, 40 pounds a week that we had something worth, worth taking another bigger leap of faith on. And, um, it was at that point we, we set out to find a roasting facility, a place to, to build our little roastery. Um, so that, that little pop-up became kind of a, uh, extended pop-up, if you will. I think it was in operation for about four years. So we still referred to it as the pop-up. So AJ, I wonder if you could tell us about your coffee journey. My history is a bit different than Dylan's. Um, my background is actually in political theory and economics, and I was working in politics at a think tank in Washington, D.C. until uh, the Obama election. And a few short months after Obama's election, I moved up to Montreal to start uh, following a pursuit of, uh, well, a love of food. I started cooking uh, under the table in a few kitchens up in Montreal, and um Fortunately, I was living in a neighborhood um, near the old Italian and Portuguese districts where coffee shops were, well, quite numerous. Um, back in those days in Montreal, and that wasn't that too long ago, 15 years ago or so, uh, especially coffee had you know, presence in a few shops, but I didn't even know about them. I was mostly spending a loonie or two loonies for a, you know, an okay Italian-style shot of espresso with a, a dram of whiskey in it. Um, but was fascinated by the culture. Um, and a couple of years of working in Montreal in the food scene, I moved back down to New York, back down to the States to move to New York uh, with a drive to actually learn about the art of feeding people from professional chefs. Um, I was cooking in a couple of kitchens in the East Village and then learning how to bake. I eventually went back to school and then was studying food policy and public health up at Columbia University and working for Mayor Bloomberg in the... Uh, office of the food policy coordinator that he had at the time and knew that eventually I wanted to work for a company that was interested in being or representing the quote, good food movement, which was burgeoning at the time. Um, rather than being in uh, political boardrooms or policy boardrooms and having conversations, I felt like the best way that I could be a part of the movement was to lead by example through business. Um, and through proxy, through getting to know people like Dylan and really looking up to Dylan as a hotshot rock star that was really just trailblazing and taking his experience and and building a business from scratch, I, I saw an opportunity to join in and to be a part of a good food company in, in the form of a coffee company. Right. So you were a fan and a client uh, at the time when he sort of snared you into his, uh, his web. One of the questions that you asked about uh, the root word of parlor or the the, the yeah. actual meaning in Dylan, I don't want to take the words out of your mouth, but parlor has multiple meanings in, in, the, in the name of the brand, right? Parlor comes from the French root word parler to speak, but also 
for conversation. And it also refers back to the parlor rooms, right, of uh, early coffee houses and coffee culture and in Austria and Central Europe, I did end up having incredible conversations in the back of the barbershop when I'd show up every weekend around the same time for a shot of espresso, just to talk shop and hear from the horse's mouth what it was like to build a business, what his vision for coffee culture was and food policy was and a wide range of conversations. Sounds like right time, right place for both of you. So Dylan, what's the scale of the business today and and what are some of the, the milestones that you guys have celebrated together? along this road to Parler's success? I, I think that, you know, there are so many milestones personally, professionally, when you're building a business for the first time that it's hard to count them, to be honest. Um, but I think when it comes to us really measuring the success of what we've built together, it's it's probably seeing the roastery cranking out 10,000 pounds of coffee a week. I think that was a, a big moment for us. You know, that was always the pie in the sky from the early days. We knew that the... Uh, the roaster we we currently roast on is a, a humble 60-year-old UG22 Probat roaster. And we always knew that once we got to about 10,000 pounds, we were pretty close to the capacity of that roaster. And so when we actually hit that number, I think we both kind of looked at each other like, shit, we're here. Wow. We're actually doing it now. Was the initial vision always roastery? I, of course, it started out as a pop-up. Um, but I'm curious, you know, that you you guys never decided uh, to to really ramp up and have your own shops like some others did. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think that that's an important thing to be honest about. You know, we when I first started, having been a barista, I knew that I knew the ins and outs of coffee service. I knew the ins and outs of coffee hospitality. I knew how to brew great coffee, make, you know, make a coffee experience special for the, for the guest. And that actually is where my true passion is rooted. But I also became incredibly fascinated with the origin behind the coffee that I was serving. And all the way back in the early days when I was working for Stumptown out in Portland, Oregon, prior to moving to New York, I remember telling my manager at the shop I worked at, you know, I want that guy's job. And I was pointing to the guy who was the director of QC and he, you know, tasted all the coffee and got to go on origin trips. And, and I thought that that was, that was the dream job. So I think part of it was me realizing if I was really going to build something, I needed to build something that could scale beyond one store at a time, brick and mortar. But I also knew that that was the future. I knew that just being a cafe brand was going to be a much harder road in New York City than the the path that we ultimately decided on. That said, uh, we <laughs> we would love to have a store in a tasting room. I think it's it's worth saying that we did have a tasting room in operation for several years after the close of the pop-up. Our roastery actually had a, about 50% of the space dedicated to that exact purpose from the outset. We would host public cuppings there and engage with the public. And that was a big part of the you know, storytelling piece and the community building piece that we developed with our operation. As we all know, 2020 put a spin on things, so we we no longer have that tasting room in operation today. But I think that we would love to re-engage with our community in a direct way. But you know, those opportunities are they're harder than they have ever been in a city like New York. 
Focusing on wholesale actually became a very natural extension for us. It wasn't just, as Dylan said, and he's right, it was perhaps the path of least resistance in those early days, but it was also a path that naturally fit with the said pillar of focusing on, on origin. Because ultimately, those partnerships that we've built at Origin and continue to strive to build, not just with farmers and pickers and cooperatives, but exporters and importers along the way, uh, reflect the exact style of relationships that we try to build with mom and pops across the country. Ultimately speaking, we're not just supporting the small businesses in Huila in Colombia, run by the farmers who we buy coffee from exclusively, but we're also sincerely and seriously focused about supporting the small businesses owned by, you know, small business owners across the country. Um, We really take it seriously that we are the number one highest number check that's written on a weekly basis by small business owners when they work with Parlor Coffee. Really, it's, it's been that hospitality focus that Dylan had in and building his career in some of the most important coffee shops in the country at the time. And we've translated that to the wholesale service we have today. Great. So keeping on that, um, the theme of, of how hard it is in New York to run cafes, uh, how, do, how do you think, AJ, the, the New York coffee scene has evolved in those last 10 years? It has evolved at light speed. It, it, is, it is beyond my wildest imagination. Um, from the extent to which we've seen coffee shops open in neighborhoods where I never expected uh, high-end specialty coffee shops to be open in the first place, um, to the amount of money pouring into this city from uh, national, international, multinational conglomerates, um, franchises, uh, all seeking uh, consistent quality, excellence, and consistent service. Um, in a high-paced, high-volume atmosphere like New York City. Um, I've seen baristas just along the same story as Dylan move out of their jobs and open one business, shutter that, open another business. Um, The life cycle of businesses here in New York being such a crazy rampart. Um, I think that the New York coffee scene has evolved in a way that um, is truly deserving of the magnifying glass that that it has on it. Dylan, you've even even got a longer time here in in operating sort of within New York. Uh, 2009, how has it changed since that period for you? I think that, you know, when I arrived in New York, the experience and the the perspective was coffee that was great, was harder to find. There were only a few games in town. You had to seek it out. The places that were doing, you know, carefully poured espresso on a La Marzocco were a dozen or so across the city. And they were all well known by the people who actually knew what was going on. And I remember moving to town and coming from Portland, Oregon, which I would argue at the time had a much more entrenched specialty coffee scene. When I arrived in New York, it felt like there was no specialty coffee. I was bumping into deli coffee and cart coffee that you could get anywhere for, you know, 50 cents to a dollar served in a cup with a lid and put into a paper bag. But in order to go get a a coffee that was made, you know, with craft and and, uh, intention, there were 
there was effort involved and you had to seek it out and you had to be very deliberate about it. And I think, you know, it, it has really gone through radical transformation over the past decade or more, I guess now 15 years, there's been um, such a surge in not only shops embracing specialty coffee, but roasters too emerging from every background and some imports, some upstarts, some large, some small. And, you know, really now you could almost throw a rock in any direction and it will hit a, a three group or a two group Lamarzoco on any corner in New York City, whether it's in a hotel or in a cafe or a restaurant. I do think that that's changed the experience a bit. I think that the consciousness is definitely more prevalent that specialty coffee is just a part of the food universe and in a way that it just wasn't when I arrived in 2009. And, um, you know, I think at the same time, by way of it being more accessible, the public, I think, needs to see more innovation. I think that the customer is almost desensitized. And I think we have an opportunity now with this new baseline set to really innovate beyond what has been the model for the past 15 or so years. What kind of in innovation are you thinking about there? I, I, again, I'd love to draw in on your passion for origin and, and, and green coffee and, and farmers. And is there innovation coming from there as well? I think that there's definitely a twofold uh, kind of innovation piece that comes to mind. I think first and foremost, there's the hospitality component. You know, I think that a lot of opportunities still exist with elevating the actual service experience of coffee. And New York is, is really begging for that. And I think that there's a market and there's an opportunity to present coffee in a way that really is on the same pedestal as going to a, a fantastic wine bar or going to a fantastic restaurant that, you know, elevates the food or the, the beverage that they're serving. So I think that that is just there for the taking. And I, I think some other brands are definitely scratching at that surface, but it's just such a big city with so much opportunity that I think the service model should definitely be evolved. And, and I mean, everything from just going beyond the default paper cup experience to presenting coffee in a way that's more of a menu rather than a, here's your option. Uh, and, and I think that ties hand in hand with, with the origin side. I think the more that we can get the consumer to appreciate that singular cup that they're enjoying in maybe a more conscious and focused way through elevating it, they might also be more open to learn about why is this special? Where is it from? What makes it different from all the other coffee that this producer harvested in the last year? And I, I think that those opportunities are, are, are still yet to be fully realized in at least my, my experience, the New York City coffee scene today. And is that the role of the roaster to try and educate the consumer or are consumers already starting to ask for it? I, th I think it's a two-way street. I, I think that the roaster does truly have to step up and and provide as much education as possible, just given that, you know, we're talking about a supply chain that is a world away, that is for many folks out of sight and out of mind. Hmm. And at the same time, there is a burgeoning community of consumers who are, you know, spending more than they've ever spent 
on yeah. food products yeah. and coffee is no exception. Yeah. So what are the challenges that you've faced? You know, setting up a business and growing to the scale that you've, you've got it to is never easy, obviously. Um, what are some of the, being the, the moments and challenges and how, do you get, how did you get through them? There are more than I could possibly list out here, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's, it's helpful, I think, to paint the, paint the picture of how humbly Parlor was started. It, it really was, you know, we jumped out of, of the plane and we <laughs> did not test the parachute before we, we, <laughs> we jumped. So that is, that is the best analogy I could provide. I mean, in the beginning it was, let's roast the coffee, let's get it into the hopper at the pop-up shop. If somebody wants to buy it, we'll figure out how to get it to them. And, you know, the first time we had an opportunity to sell our coffee to a restaurant or a, a cafe, um, there were just a handful in Brooklyn that were early adopters. The questions started pouring in. How are you going to provide technical support? How are you going to service my equipment? How are you going to train my staff? What kind of parameters so, you know, pretty quickly it became evident that we had to build more than just a coffee roasting business. It, it required a wholesale program. And so in the very beginning, it was, it was trying to, you know, find time in the margins of the day that really didn't exist to, to service those needs at the, at the most minuscule scale. And as, as we sort of gained traction and, and critical mass developed to where it made sense to hire, you know, a couple of people and to eventually go from delivering our coffee and paper bags in a taxi cab to buying a van. We, we ultimately realized, or I ultimately realized it, the next challenge, which I would say was to work on the business, not in the business. And that took years because once I solved one problem, I was fighting myself knee deep in another, you know, I wasn't delivering the coffee anymore, but I was still roasting the coffee, for example. And that probably went on far too long. So those are the really early challenges that I think helped to illustrate um, how bootstrapped those early days were. But you know, as we've grown, those challenges have evolved and and the shape has really changed. We have a much bigger business than we did back in 2020. 12, 13, 14. And so the shape and the nature of, of growth has, has shifted away from how do we physically fulfill the coffee orders to, you know, how do we manage a team? How do we grow a team? How do we build better systems? How do we ensure quality across more products than we've ever offered? You know, those are the types of questions that we're asking today. And, and is there anything you would have done differently if you kind of could wind back the clock? I, I don't have any regrets. I'd say that. I don't have any regrets, but, um, you know, building the roastery the first time around was definitely a learning experience like none other. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It would have definitely been easier to budget appropriately for that build out. And it would have been easier to, to work more closely with an architect on the planning side before we commence construction, but all's well that ends well, they say. So, you know, our roastery is humming along. Excellent. What about you, AJ? Any things that you think uh, you might've actioned in the business if you had sort of 2020 hindsight? Yeah, Jeff. I, I, I mean, I, I met you really early on in my coffee career. Yeah, I remember you're the first one of the first I people came across you. Mm. Yep. Um, and what would 
first thing I'd change, <laughs> I'd go to business school. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I would have a career in coffee before joining Dylan. He's always referred to me as a tourist, considering uh, I, I left this out in my introduction. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but um, I only worked at Blue Bottle for about six months. All of my other experiences were in uh, other sides of the food system and food production, food hospitality. Um, but yeah, I've, of course, I would have loved to have had more experience on the line, but it all came quite naturally mm-hmm. over time. Um, I'd say one of the biggest challenges that I faced in building this business with Dylan um, was truly the the notion of how integral and how um, fundamental, frankly, how personal the relationship between Parlor Coffee and our wholesale partners would become in the blink of an eye. It's probably one of the my favorite parts of the job uh, is being so closely knit and intertwined with the small business owners that we get to work with all across the country. And yet, um, it is absolutely the biggest challenge that we've faced. Um, anticipating our customers' needs, understanding their needs as they grow, um, witnessing them opening a second location, a third location, moving to a new city, um, and basically building the plane as we've been flying it to play off of Dylan's analogy um, has absolutely been the hardest part of the business from my perspective. And if I had 2020 hindsight, um, perhaps, uh, well, truly the number one thing I would do is, is to, is to have those standard operating procedures from day one, Dylan, to basically say, this is our program. This is what we do. You, these are the services you can expect. You will always have my cell phone number. Um, (laughs) but those promises, making sure that we never overpromised and underdelivered, that is that was definitely the the biggest challenge and something I might have changed from day one. Mm. So you know, no doubt, uh, become a great team, and obviously that success wouldn't have happened if you 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 weren't a great team. Um, what's the key to having that sort of you know partnership together to make and grow something uh, so successfully? Uh, over so much time now, and actually staying in business together, how, how, how does that happen? What what has been your keys to success? That's a great question. I mean, that's like asking how do you how do you uh, keep a marriage alive for a lifetime? You know, but I would say the first thing that comes to mind is is the belief. You know, that central belief in the vision, and I think that if we somehow didn't believe in what we were doing. If there was genuine lack of faith somewhere in the journey, you know, we would have given up. We would have given up on each other. We would have given up on the on the building of the brand, the building of the business. But I think that fundamental spark of of belief in the whole, you know, sort of realizing the dream was what drove us through the the, the tough times and the the times when you know challenges were more numerous than I think either of us ever thought we had signed oh, up for. Oh, there were tough times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there must have been moments of like, how are we going to pay all our suppliers and, you know, our, let alone our staff? And it happens in every business. Um, and how do you ride that out? Absolutely. I mean, it, Dylan is spot on, you know, a shared value system, first and foremost. Those early conversations in the back of the barbershop weren't just about uh, hospitality culture in the late 2000s. They were about what it meant to build an ethical supply chain and what it meant to be, I know I've said it before in this interview, but a good food business with a mission, 
with a value system. Uh, and from day one, I think that we didn't know it, but we were building a level of trust between each other. Um, and no question about it, I think that it was an, an earned trust over a, over a long time. I mean, to his credit, and frankly, to bring up your wife, Dylan, Tessa, I mean, there from day one, the two of you truly built this from nothing with very, very little support. And to bring someone like me in was an inherent level of trust that is really difficult to muster. Um, and we've been able to keep that, I like to repeat you, Dylan, because we both share this this vision for a greater goal for the company, but also a higher standard that we hold the industry to, which we work in um, as a coffee roaster. Absolutely. And and yeah, no, AJ definitely earned his stripes. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so what's what's the future hold for Parlor Coffee over the next few years? What are you most excited about? I'm always excited about every single new wholesale partner that we bring in. I'm excited about the new wine bar from uh, a chef who never is focused on specialty coffee before as a part of his menu or the last taste in his customer's mouth. Uh, opening up in the West Village, getting all the press in the world and knowing that you, when you walk into that wine bar, um, you're going to see a parlor coffee sign above a beautiful, gleaming, brand new La Marzocco. Um, I'm excited about our wholesale partners who have been open for five, six, seven years that are now interested in opening their second location or their third location or hiring a general manager. Um, I'm excited, honestly, about our employees and the team that's been with us for some of them almost 10 years, like Stephanie Dana or Warwick Maine, um, frankly, Tessa as well, who's been with Dylan from day one, to be able to be a part of our business as we get to expand our vision beyond just the day-to-day -day of sustaining the business, growing the business, adding a new wholesale partner, ensuring that a new relationship in Colombia or Kenya is fostered with the same care that we have for our wholesale customers. I'm excited to just build the brand. And I know that might sound cheesy, but I feel like we have a lot of, a, a lot of vision, a lot of dream that uh, I think will be palpable to not just New York City, but the rest of the country. And what about you, Dylan? What's your vision? Yeah. Going forward, you know, now. right now, my vision is this architectural drawing of our new roastery next door. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I keep looking at every morning when I when I wake up. Uh, we're we're in the midst of that, so the real vision right now is just to see that through in the near term, so we can continue to grow and have that foundation for growth for the three to five years ahead. But you know, I think more than anything, I I think there is this this sort of lifelong spark that we touched on earlier that is a part of my background, my hospitality uh, DNA, if you will, which is to re-engage with our community in a, in a direct way. It's, it's such an honor to have incredible personal relationships with growers and, and exporters and various supply chain partners throughout the world and to bring incredible coffees to New York City to roast them and to sell them to partners that, like AJ mentioned. But of course, we would love, and I personally would love to see Parlor build a platform of our own to once again re-engage with our our customer in a, in a very direct way. And I think that looks probably like us reopening our tasting room uh -huh. in the next few years. And eventually having a flagship store to really take that tasting room experience to a, to a whole new height. Just one final question for each of you. Um, start 
with you, Dylan. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've been given in your career? The first thing that comes to mind is it's a marathon, not a sprint. It was, it was in the very early days. I think I came, I came into this and I thought I had to do everything on day one. And one of my early advisors and business partners who helped fund the operation at the outset saw me, you know, and he saw how enthusiastic I was and how much pressure I was putting on myself. And he, he just said to me, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's, it's stuck with me all these years. It, I think as a runner, it's particularly resonant, but it's, it's priceless advice. You, you can't get it all done in a day. And if you tire yourself out trying to go, you know, full steam in the first week of your operation, you'll never reach your destination. Fantastic advice, AJ. I think the piece of advice that I picked up in just my life experiences and the different iterations of a career that I've had over the last couple of decades is to exhibit empathy and to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to attempt at every turn to see a situation from a point of view that's outside of your own. Um, clearly, that was something that I was for forced to embody when working in Washington, D.C. and thinking about politics and and frankly, of course, when I started cooking and learning that no matter what my taste was, it was always the taste of the chef that mattered most. But when it came to building this business with Dylan and working with wholesale partners, first and foremost, um, it's always been uh, a guiding light and um, a North Star for me to think about um, the other person's perspective on the other end of the line and to display empathy in the best way possible. What a great way to leave it. Dylan, AJ... Thanks so much for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having us. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share the link with a friend or colleague. Also, if you're on Apple or Spotify, we'd really love a five-star review to help us increase our reach across the industry. To stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, collecting all the big coffee news stories. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. As mentioned earlier, this week's song in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project is Burn by Nicole Zoraitis. A big congratulations to Nicole on her Grammy Award. Until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. So slow, deceptive ease and constant flow of vertigo. Bridge invited to take a chance. I think I'll finally try a new
trembling fingers that certain look upon your face And all the nervous fear of new beginnings While I'm searching for excuses to let go And oh, I didn't know that I could burn so slow Deceptive ease and constant flow of vertigo Courage invited to take a chance I think I'll finally try a new romance Yeah, dig it.